She is cute. All right, so if you need notes, there's, uh, there's some in the back, or you can get them on your phone, on your laptop, on your iPad, your iPod, whatever it is you carry, whatever personal computer you have. As we look at, so we're just gonna jump right in and continue as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, which, <clears throat> Again, there are many who have called the Sermon on the Mount the Constitution for the Church. Um, and the Beatitudes would be um, our Bill of Rights. It is, um, it is interesting to me how many believers, people who have been saved for years, uh, people who you know, have been saved recently. How many people really have never taken the time to understand and look at the Sermon on the Mount and how it applies to our life? It's, it's, it's much the same way. I am, I don't know if grieved is the right word, shocked may be a better word, and how many in the coming up generation know nothing about the civics of our nation? They know, they have no, I mean, ask them, who wrote the Constitution? What war did we fight to get our independence? Who do we fight it with? They don't know anything. It just blows my mind, you know. Um, but even if you ask people, um, what are the five rights or privileges that are given to us in the First Amendment? Most of the people can name one or two, but most cannot name all five. And um, I, I would speak them to you, but then you wouldn't have anything to research. Sure I do. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, the right to assemble, and the right to petition our government uh, to change laws. Those are the five rights given to us in the First Amendment. Everybody knows a lot about the Second Amendment. You know, but... If I asked you what, how, how does the Sermon on the Mount, how do the Beatitudes apply to our lives? Most people don't even know what the nine Beatitudes are. And so we're just going to continue. And, and, and today as we look at, I, I love the way the Holy Spirit puts things together. I mean, he's such a great orchestrator. I mean, Jill and I didn't talk about what I was going to pray today or what verse or what topic, but the way the songs come together with what the Lord is saying to our nation is what we're praying for now. Um, and as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, this, this, this one beatitude, this one we're starting with, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for they will be filled or they will be satisfied. Righteousness is such an important thing to Jesus that he talks about it six different times in the Sermon on the Mount, um, each time in a different aspect of our walk with him. And so, righteousness really is the key theme for the entire Sermon on the Mount. So you could say righteousness is the key theme for the life of the church. Um, 
1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and so as we look at these, we're going to look at three beatitudes today. The, the blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart. And as we look at righteousness, the reason Jesus addresses this is, remember, he, is, he has come up out of the wilderness. He spent a little bit of time with his disciples ministering to them. And then he went to sit down to teach them, and all these people show up. Thousands of people show up. And so when he gets to this issue of blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be filled, he was, he was undoing culture. He was undoing what um, Israel had adapted as truth, um, which really was a lie. It's much like our nation today. And, and, and the truth they were embracing was the truth that was presented to them by the self-righteous religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And so um, the Pharisees can, you know, were content with an external form of obedience um, by conformity to the letter of the law. And as a result, they continued to add to the law, to add to the law, to add to the law. Um, it was called the Talmud. And, and they just began to, to expand and expand and expand, um, setting all kinds of regulations. And they felt that if you kept the regulations, it had to be the Torah and the Talmud. If you kept the two together, your outward life would be an expression of righteousness. And so Jesus is starting out, he's saying, look it, let's go back and let's understand what righteousness is and what the reward of righteousness is. And so he, he wanted them, he wanted these people, he's talking to his disciples, Jesus got all these other people listening to them. He wanted them to understand the distinction between true righteousness and legal correction. He won't understand the, 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 the distinction between um, a, a true righteous spirit and a religious spirit. And, and the religious spirit is so prevalent even today in the church. Um, and, and this is one thing I have found over the years just in dealing with people. People are most judgmental toward their own weaknesses. You know, we're, we, we recognize them in other people, and we hate it so much in us, we just become an advocate for it. And, and, and uh, the result of that, if you keep carrying it to extreme, carrying it to extreme, is you become very self-righteous, you carry a religious spirit, you become judgmental of everything because you aren't walking righteously in anything. And so to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to press into God um, with, with a with a heart that says, I'm still hungry. You know, after you fasted, when you fast for one meal, it's interesting what the brain does. You could get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee and just, you know, you could go till dinner and not eat. But the moment you say you're fasting, you just add that little word to not eating, everything changes. Your brain changes. You're hungry when you're normally not hungry. All you think about is food. And, and, and after you've fasted for a while, um, it's not about savoring the flavor of the food. It's about getting full. You just want to put something in your mouth and get it in your belly to fill it up. 
And really, when it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the word hunger, the context is to fill yourself. It's, it's, not, to, it, it's, it's not to eat for delight. It's to eat to live. And so when it talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it talks about a passion and a hunger within us that desires to intake, to hunger, to feed ourselves upon that which is going to sustain life, not that which is going to make us feel good for a moment. And so when Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he's talking about an intense longing to be right with God, that it becomes a hunger, that it becomes a passion, that it's not... Most people, and I'll just speak for myself, most people, when they are out of fellowship with God, they, they have a tendency to focus on the condemnation that the enemy whispers to them as opposed to the drawing of the Lord that says, here's a table, come and eat. We have a tendency to, to avoid the Lord when he's saying, I have everything you need. Come, confess your sin, I'll cleanse you, we will have fellowship. And so we have a tendency to choose to starve ourselves spiritually for the sake of peace of mind. Um, and the peace of mind is we don't want to have to deal with the conflict of the sin in our life. It's better for us to push it down than it is to deal with it. That's so much why, why Scripture talks so much about accountability between each other. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that what? You may be healed. And so we have, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know, Paul, Paul understood that he couldn't just walk in what he already knew. And I would say if, if you know, Paul was probably the smartest um, spiritual guy of his day. I mean, he knew scripture. He knew Jesus. He was a smart guy. But this is what he said. He says, I'm not satisfied with what I already have. He says, not only have I already attained, I'm not happy with what I've already achieved. He says this, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also lay hold of me, the fullness of his destiny. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call, which is the fullness of Paul's destiny of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul said, I'm not going to rest on my past laurels. I'm not going to rest on what I've done. In fact, he tells us, buffeted him, Romans, that, you know, he's, he, he talks about this, this spirit that buffeted him. And he tells us he knows why God did it so that his head wouldn't get too big over all the revelation God had been giving him. He says, God was allowing this to happen to keep me humble. And so we have to understand, Paul says, look it, I want to stay humble, and I don't want to rest on what I already know or what's already happened. I don't want to rest on how many churches I've already planted, how many people I've already prayed for to be healed, how many, how, how many followers are coming after Jesus. He says, I want to press on more toward the goal of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul later went on to say, this is the call. This is the high call, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so as Jesus goes through, and, and like I said, he talks about righteousness Many other times. He talks about it six more times. He talks about righteousness as the means by which we resist anger. He talks about righteousness um, on how we remain moral and we resist immorality. He talks about righteousness in, in, in 
not being disloyal in our relationships. He talks about righteousness as a means that we don't swear falsely if we're righteous, that we don't retaliate if we're righteous, and um, that we don't walk passively in love. We walk aggressively in love. And so hunger is one of the most important signs of life. When a baby is born, the first thing we do after they cry is they begin to look for food. Babies cry. They want to eat. They're hungry. And, and God puts that in them because there's something in the mother that the baby needs those first few days out of the mother's breast that helps, us, that helps establish the baby's life, its nourishing system. So God has put it within babies to hunger right away. God has put in every one of us in this room the desire to hunger for righteousness. So if we're not hungering for righteousness, then we are making willful decisions to not listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're making a choice to try and silence what God's saying to us as this hunger comes because hunger is, is, is natural. Many are in <clears throat> spiritual intensive care because they are not dealing with the hunger God's put inside of them. And it becomes easy. You know, um, if, if you've ever fasted for a long time, there does come a moment where you're not hungry anymore. There does come a moment when, I'm not saying you don't think about food, but the gnawing in your gut goes away. And, and people who go on, you know, who, who um, protest with they're hungry, and they can starve them. The reason they can do it is because they do get to a point where they're no longer hungry, and they can starve themselves to death because hunger is no longer gnawing at them. The same thing is true spiritually. There does come a point where even though we still need spiritual food, we have avoided it for so long, it's no longer the passion. We've, we've accepted something else as our passion to hunger and thirst after. Because everybody's going to hunger and thirst after something. There's something that's going to be the passion and the pursuit of our life. And Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. If we were to look at that logically and follow an antithesis, we could also say what Jesus is saying is nothing else will satisfy. Righteousness is going to be the only thing that fills us, the only thing that will satisfy. And so gaining ground in God's grace as we hunger in the pursuit of God, it grows within us and how we keep our ground. We're going to look at this later. But here's one of the things Jesus says um, very clearly, people who are not walking in righteousness, people who are not making righteous decisions will not be persecuted. He says, blessed are the righteous who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness sake. See, what happens is when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when it becomes the passion of our life, let's just take it for example the ending of abortion. To say that we should not be killing babies is a righteous statement. If you say it in this room, everybody's in agreement. If you go and you stand on the street corner and you begin to say abortion is murder, abortion is killing babies, if you go into, if, if you go into Planned Parenthood, and you say abortion is murder, you will become persecuted. In fact, they even now, people are persecuted and belittled. I, th there was a thing 
last week, well, when, when the, the March for Life was taking place in Washington, D.C., of course, all the, the, the pro, I'm going to say pro-abortion people, they, they say pro-women's health, came out and had these panels. And on these panels, they did two things. They, they bragged about their favorite abortion. So these are women who have more than one abortion, and they were talking about which one was their favorite. But then at the same time, they were belittling and demeaning anybody who would say that a baby has more rights than a woman. So if you stand for righteousness according to, to Jesus, according to, to the Sermon on the Mount, according to our life, if we stand for righteousness, one of the signs that we are living righteously is persecution will come. And the church is, the church is going to have to make up its mind really soon what it's going to stand up for. Because the, the voice of righteousness is becoming quieter and quieter. That's the voice of hunger. So that's what you should sound like every day when you get up. I'm hungry for Jesus. I want his word. Um, and so we need to recognize, I mean, Jesus says persecution's going to come. He said it is going to be not the exception, but the rule. And the ones who are going to be persecuted are the righteous. He says there will be those who will be offended and will choose not to walk in righteousness for the sake of preservation. So we need to know that righteousness, there's this promise that we will be filled. And it's not with self-righteousness. It's not with a judgmental spirit. It's with the righteousness of God that lives within us, that, that enables us, empowers us to stand against sin. And so, I, I want to exhort and encourage you not to be silent on the issue of abortion. I, I, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, when do I need to speak up and what do I need to say? We need to make certain that we are a voice that's heard because we were silent. We were silent when they wanted to take prayer out of schools. In the 60s, we were silent with Roe versus Wade. We were even silent. There was in, in, the, in the 40s, there was a law that was upheld by our Supreme Court in a vote of, of eight to one. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote the ruling. But our Supreme Court upheld a law. And the law was Buck versus Bell. And when they approved the sterilization of anybody who was considered to be an incorrigible, if you were sexually promiscuous, if you were black, if you were impoverished, if you were uncontrollable, it was legal for your parents or for a doctor to step in and sterilize you because the re reasoning was, it was called eugenics, the reasoning was they didn't want to continue breeding imbeciles. That's, that's what the, the, the famous line in Oliver Wendell Holmes' um, writing was, um, three generations of um, incorrigibles is too much. Let's stop it now. And, and basically what had happened was this, that this, this woman, Dorothy Buck, her, her mother had had her out of wedlock, 
and she had a baby out of wedlock and was just about, they wanted to sterilize her because she'd had a baby out of wedlock. They didn't want her to have another one. And went all the way to the Supreme Court. And actually, um, <clears throat> Bell, the attorneys, they, they set her up. They used, if, you, if you read the story, they used her for the whole thing. She just became a pawn to, to get done what they wanted done. Um, in Roe versus Wade, um, Roe's name was not Roe, but, but the woman who was Roe eventually became a believer. Um, she died a couple of years ago, but she will tell you that she was manipulated and she was used in order to get this before the Supreme Court. And, and understand how evil works. Evil says, evil is always, takes just a little bit of truth so that there seems to be righteousness in it. So they didn't argue before the Supreme Court. The argument was, if a woman wants to terminate her pregnancy, it's nobody's business. She has a right to privacy. Nobody has a right to stick their nose in her business. And if she wants to terminate that pregnancy, we should allow her to do it with a doctor uh, because they went, you know, and the symbol was coat hangers. There were too many back alley abortions. And so, again, as I've already said, our Supreme Court says, okay, we're going to let this happen until it can be determined when life begins. And so now the argument is not, it's not about abortion. It went from abortion to, to um, a woman's right to choose, which is the Fourth Amendment, you know, rights. That's what they focused on. But once they realized that people were saying this fetus has life, it has a right also. That's why they started to say a fetus has no rights. A fetus is a parasite sucking off its mother uh, to, to maintain itself. If you take it away from the mother, it will die. So it has no rights. That is how unrighteousness seeps its way in to where it becomes the, the wellhead of a position of a nation that was founded upon morality and founded upon righteousness. I'm not going to say it was founded upon Christianity because it wasn't. Most of our founding fathers were deists. I'm not so sure that they were born-again believers. Some were, some weren't. But they understood there was a God, and they understood the Bible talked about God. And so we had, we, we had a, a foundation of morality based upon what Scripture says. And we are at a place now because the church has remained silent, because the righteous have not been so hungry for righteousness that they can't be silenced because the righteous don't want to offend or they don't want to fight or they don't want to put down or they don't want to be persecuted, keep their mouth shut. And Jesus says, if we will hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will satisfy that hunger. And, and it's, it, it's like the prophet says, it was shut up in my bones and I couldn't, be, I couldn't keep silent anymore. Jeremiah said, I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to prophesy anymore because every time I opened my mouth, it wasn't good stuff for Israel. But it was shut up in my bones. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. I'd open my mouth, it would come out. Um, you know, Balaam said the same thing to, to, to Balak. Yeah, you want me to prophesy against Israel that they'll be defeated? But I can't because God doesn't lie. And when God what wells up my bones, what comes out of my mouth is what the Word of God says. The same thing is for us. As we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what is welled up in our spirit will come out of our mouth. The Bible says that, not me. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. 
So whatever we're feeding into our heart, whatever we're hungering and thirsting for, whatever we're feeding in our heart, that's the abundance of what comes out. And, and you can tell what people feed upon by where the conversation goes. When they sit down and they talk about the things of God is, you know, I read this today, or let's pray for this person, or this is what the Lord's doing, and we're going to go help this person. Or is it about who knows what? Is it about Trump? Is it about the economy? Is it about abortion? Is it about, you know, the Super Bowl? Is it about whatever? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'll be satisfied. And out of the hungry and the thirsting, as we're full, <clears throat> what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart. Then Jesus goes on and he says, on cue, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So receiving and giving mercy is essential to our happiness I mean, I want to receive mercy and our greatness by being merciful. Being merciful is not a call to be casual about sin. It's not a call to, to just come, you know, offer some sort of an unsanctified mercy toward a sinner. Because God is merciful, God is holy, and God is just. And God's justice says no to sin. God does not show mercy to sin. God does show mercy to sinners. There's a big difference. But if we're going to receive mercy, the Bible says we need to be merciful. And so God shows mercy to us by giving us a new beginning so that we would fear God. Psalm 134 says, but there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Talking about God. And when it talks about fearing God, again, it's not talking about being afraid. It's talking about being awe of a holy, just righteous God who we stand before who wants to make us holy, just, and righteous as well. So justice gives us what we deserve. Mercy receives what we do not deserve. Let me say that again. Justice gives us what we deserve. Mercy receives what we do not deserve. God shows mercy to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us the fullest expression of mercy. We do not deserve mercy. We do not deserve God's mercy. We deserve God's justice. But because we accept the work of the cross, because we have confessed our sin and we believe that Christ shed his blood that we could be forgiven and that we could walk in righteousness, God extends mercy toward us while we were yet sinners. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. So we need to understand that mercy, God always gives at least what we deserve because he's just, yet he's free to give more than what we deserve when he extends mercy. You know, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So there is time in God's mercy that he allows us to learn a lesson. He allows us to go through something in order that we might come out the other side. And our life is so full of God's mercy and receiving so much more than we really deserve that we can overlook the fact that we don't deserve anything we have. My, my wife and I, we, we, we talk often about God's mercy in our life, how God takes care of us, how God provides for us, how, how faithful he is to, to take care of us even when we are a mess. He, he loves us. You know, others 
you know, with more blessing received, more than they deserved. And, and God is a just God, and God is going to do what he does. And it comes back to this parable that Jesus talks about. Um, he talks in this parable, he says, they complain, the workers, because the parable is a, a boss hired some workers to work a full day and says, you work a full day, I'm just going to pick them out. Work a full day, I'll give you 100 bucks. So all these workers are working. There's about an hour left, and more workers show up. And the boss says, come, work for this final hour, and I'll give you 100 bucks. And the people who've been working all day are complaining because they worked all day for 100 bucks, and the guy working for an hour is getting the same pay. And this is the parable. And, and Jesus says, the last man have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us. Who have, been born, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish to do with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Jesus said, look it, you made a deal with me. You came and said, I'm willing to work for you for a whole day for $100. If I decide I want to give this guy $100 for an hour, does that make me a bad person? It doesn't. I've, I'm, I'm remaining just. I'm giving you what I said I would give you. And just because this person is receiving the same mercy that you've received and they've been saved less time than you've been saved doesn't mean I'm an unjust God because you're both receiving mercy. It may be different circumstances. It may be in different quantity, but you're receiving mercy. And we need to understand that, that God's mercy, out of his justice, he meets it out for the circumstance in our lives. And some of us, yes, receive more mercy than others, and, and we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice in the fact that God is extending mercy towards somebody who keeps messing up all the time. People, let's, let's look at, at some of the people that, that, you know, that live on the river. You know, they have, a lot of them accepted Jesus. A lot of them know the Bible. You sit down and you start to tell them scripture, they can quote it with you. They can tell you lots of things. But they keep making choices that um, would not allow them to keep a job, to keep a marriage, to keep a place to live. And yet God is extending to them the same exact mercy he gives to us. Their reward is, of eternal life is exactly the same as our reward of eternal life, even though they struggle daily with things you and I don't understand. God's mercy is the same, even though his justice may be meted out in different portions. So there are various ways to show mercy. This is, this is what Paul says when he writes to the church of Colossae. He says, put on tender mercies. And here are tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has so played against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do so. So we're called to be tender toward those who mistreat, who annoy, who complain, who are different, less committed to God, who make mistakes, who stumble in scandalous sin, and are in great need of suffering because of poverty, sickness, oppression, persecution, or other trials, we are to be tender. Because the Bible says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
In order for us to receive the full portion of mercy, we must walk as those who are merciful. And we are supposed to be merciful. Paul says, show tender mercies, and he talks about how we show it. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing one another, forgiving one another, walking. You know, um, if anyone has a complaint against you, forgive them. I, I talk to, to, to people um, all the time. I was with a family member two nights ago, and, and they told me how they still have a hard time forgiving somebody who said something about them almost 40 years ago. And basically, they said, this is the profession I'm going to choose. And they, they were a student at APU, and they were in one of those small life groups. And the leader of the life group laughed at them and said, you're never going to be that. Even though they became what they said, they, they, the life choice they made, the career they made, they became what they said they wanted to do. To this day, they still wrestle with forgiveness for something that was said 40 years ago. Jesus said, if you want to receive mercy, you have to extend mercy. And, I, and I'm always bothered by, because this was the conversation, I have forgiven them, but there, there is no but after forgiveness. Either you forgive or you don't. Either, either you extend mercy because you want to receive mercy or you don't. So how do we deal with those who mistreat us? And we'll talk about that later on in, in, in chapter 5. But this is what Jesus says. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus calls us to give mercy to those who mistreat us by lying about us or by taking what is ours. Um, to me, there's nothing more frustrating than being lied about. When it gets down to your word against their word and people choose to believe the liar, to me, that is the greatest injustice. And yet Jesus says that I have to deal with. And yet Jesus says, it doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter who believes them. Your responsibility is not to mistreat them. Your responsibility is to forgive them, to bless them, to love them, to do good to them, to pray for them. Um, and that's part of our role of extending mercy. If we want to walk in the full measure of God's mercy in our life, then we have to walk in a full measure of extending mercy to those who in all probability, according to our assessment, do not deserve it. If you're going to lie about me and you're going to ruin friendships, um, I, I, have, I have times in my life where friendships have ended. We're talking friendships that were 20 years old. And they ended because somebody lied about a circumstance. And when I went back and, and said, that is not what happened, I was told to stop defending myself and to take responsibility. And as a result, that relationship ended. It's, it's, to this day, it's hurtful. To this day, I mean, I, I, I do have to wrestle with that. I have to wrestle with people who have mistreated other people that I love and care for and have hurt them 
and somehow think it's the other person's fault. If you had acted a certain way, I wouldn't have had to do that. I wouldn't have acted that way if you had done that. And the Lord tells me I'm supposed to love that person, forgive that person, pray for that person um, the same way that Jesus loves and forgives me. That's mercy. Mercy is not easy. But Jesus says if you want to receive mercy, you have to extend mercy. You have to extend forgiveness. You have to walk in humility and meekness and long-suffering. You know, I, it's interesting. Long-suffering is really not a part of our vocabulary. I've, I've never heard anybody say, I'm long-suffering today. Um, I, 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 think, I think we've chosen to avoid that word. Because nobody wants to suffer, let alone suffer long. And long-suffering basically means this. You have grace and patience to walk out with that person however long you have to go to walk it out until they're, until they're okay or until they walk away and say, I'm done. That's long-suffering. You know, to those who stumble in scandalous sin, we're supposed to show grace and mercy. To be merciful to people who experience significant spiritual failures, we tenderly need to seek to help them to bring them back. This is what Paul says. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. Um, there are certain things that I have a real hard time tolerating and forgiving. But according to Scripture, that if, if people who stumble in scandalous sin, if, if I can't forgive them... Then Jesus says, and he says it later in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about forgiveness. If you don't forgive, I don't forgive you. If you don't show mercy, you don't receive mercy. And so it's not our job to, 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 to draw a line and say, um, you are unworthy or you're not allowed to be. Our job is to love, to pray. It is not to accept. Let me make this clear. Acceptance is not defined L-O-V-E. Okay, if you're going to love somebody, it doesn't mean you have to accept what they do. It means you extend mercy, you extend grace. He also says to show mercy to those who are suffering. John says this, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love or mercy of God abide in him? I, I still wrestle with this to this day. Um, I've shared this before, but I, I used to make sure I had no cash on me. So if somebody came and asked for money, I could honestly say, I don't have any money. If they start saying, well, I have a square, I can take your ATM, and then I'll be a little... Uh... But, but the Lord really had to deal with my heart. Because then as I started, said, okay, I'll carry money, then I found myself wanting to make sure I had ones in my wallet. Because if they ask if I have any money and all I have is a 20, I'm either going to lie to them or I'm going to have to ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? And there have been times it's been like that, and I'll say, what do you want it for? And they'll say, I'm hungry. And then I'll say, come on, let me buy you something to eat. And it usually costs less than $20, so I'm good. 
But, but there are times that the Lord says, give it to them. And I have all kinds of thoughts. You're not going to buy food with this. I know what you're going to do with it. You know, I'm probably the 20th person today who's giving you 20 bucks. You're probably making more money today than I made. Um, all kinds of thoughts. But according to Scripture, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to extend mercy, to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and to be obedient. And if they ask for money and the Lord tells me, no, don't give them money, I have to tell them why. I'm not going to lie and say, no, I don't have any money. I have to say, you know what? I do have money, but I'm not going to give it to you right now. Um, but I feel like I need to pray for you. Can I pray for you? And I don't do that a lot, but I will tell you this. Every time I've done that, they've said no and walked away. And so there is something. We need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to be merciful. You know, um, God wants us to show mercy. God delights in showing us mercy. He wants us to delight in showing other people's mercy. Jesus longs to heal sinful people, even those who sinned against us. He wants us to be a part of his redemptive plan. He wants us to love our enemies. He wants us to embrace with tender mercy. You know, Micah the prophet says this, Who is a God like you? This is before Jesus comes, by the way. This is before Jesus died on the cross. This is Micah declaring, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgressions of the remnant. He does not retain his anger forever because why? He delights in mercy. What kind of God do we serve that delights in mercy even when we deserve more? Here's the promise. If we extend mercy, we receive mercy. He is highlighting the spiritual principle of reaping and sowing. Paul says it this way when he writes to the church at Galatians. Galatia. He says, don't be deceived and don't mock God because God's been very clear. What you sow is what you'll reap. The exact words is, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. In order for us to reap mercy, we have to sow mercy. In order for us to reap forgiveness, we have to reap forgiveness. In order for us to reap long-suffering, we have to sow long-suffering. God's very clear about that principle. Reaping and sowing are the primary principles of salvation. Jesus sowed his life into the earth so that you and I might have life. The only way we could have eternal life is if Jesus gave his life for us. The only way that we are going to receive mercy is if we are people who walk in mercy. If we are people who show mercy. <clears throat> and, and I don't want to delineate who's hardest for you to show mercy to. Because we each have problems. We each have our own areas where we say, I just can't show mercy there. Could be lying, could be stealing, could be adultery, could be murder, could be being progressive and not being conservative. I don't know what it is, but it, whatever it is, we need to walk in, in that mercy. And I have to tell you, um, the hardest part right now, the hardest part of mercy for me to show is, is even praying yesterday as I listened to the governor of Virginia, as I listened to him describe, well, you know, if, if we just take the baby out of the womb and we let it lie there and then we'll have a discussion with the mother and the baby will be calm. 
We'll make sure the baby's sedated so there's no problem. And we'll talk with the mom about whether or not we're going to keep or terminate a baby's life. I was sitting there going, God, strike this man dead. How, how, can, how can he get away with that? And, and I'm doing that as I'm studying about mercy. And, and here's the deal. The ultimate job of mercy and justice is in God's hands. But for me, the way I show mercy, to, I don't know this man. I'll probably never meet this man. I will never talk to this man. I'll never be able to give him my side of the story. The way I extend mercy toward this man is in sincerity to pray for him. And, and my prayer, when I pray for people in this category that need mercy, my prayer is always this, that they will encounter the love of God to the place of having to make the choice to accept or reject the work of the cross. Because ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to change this man. I mean, this man has gone to medical school. This man is a pediatrician. This man is there when babies are delivered. The only thing that's going to change this man's heart is an encounter with Jesus. So the best way I can show mercy to this man who I do not know and who I'll never talk to is to pray for his salvation. Pray that God will encounter him. And, and it becomes a prayer like this. You know, redeem or remove. God, encounter him, bring him to the place of repentance and redemption, or remove him from the power to do what he says he's going to do. Remove him from office as governor. Remove him so he doesn't have a voice. Take away his medical license, whatever. But it's not my job to execute justice or judgment. That's God's job. It's my job to execute mercy. And, and again, the way we execute mercy, there was this, this list of how we extend it. We put on tender mercies by extending kindness and humility and meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against us, even as Christ forgave you, we must also do. So when I pray for this man, and, and I don't remember his name because I was so upset with him. I, don't, I just know he's the governor of Virginia. And, and he's getting called out. Here, here's, this is how our culture works. He's been asked to resign because of a picture that showed up in his medical school yearbook where they said he was in blackface standing next to a guy in a KKK outfit. And first he apologized for it and said it was deplorable. He shouldn't have done it. He was young. Then he came out yesterday and said, that's not me. But so he's not being asked to resign as governor of Virginia because he thinks it's okay to kill a baby after it's been in the mother's womb for nine months and the mother has gone through labor to deliver it and that baby has come out of the mother's womb and is alive. They don't want to remove him from office because he says, I'll kill that baby if the mom wants me to. They want to remove him from office because 30 years ago, he put shoe polish on his face. So that's, that, that's what's happening when we're too late. Because it's, it's too little, too late. You know, we, it's going to take the hand of God to sovereignly move and do what he's doing. And, and I know I'm probably singing to the choir here, 
But I think we need to hold on to and continue to pray and know that God is executing mercy on America right now with the president he's given us. Because if the other candidate had been elected, <laughs> we not, may not even be able to meet here. God is using this man in all of his stuff and all of his verbosity and all of his whatever. God has placed him in office. God is using him. And, and people don't think about these things. He is putting judges into our courts who are 40 years old, who are 50 years old, who are men and women of God who believe scripture and want to stand for righteousness. And, and even if the prophets are wrong and he's not reelected in 2020, even if 2020 all hell breaks loose and, and, and you know, that Cortez chick becomes president, you know, what, whatever, some, some far, far left progressive becomes president, what President Trump is doing is going to last generations. There will be a righteous voice, even if there isn't a righteous man or woman in the White House. So we need to see what God's doing. That's why we need to pray for this man. He is making, he's standing for life. He's standing against abortion. He's standing for justice. He's standing for righteousness. And he may not be one of the best guys, but we're supposed to extend mercy toward him. We're supposed to extend mercy toward him by praying for him, by asking God to use him in spite of himself because God is, and we need to recognize that. Finally, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I have to tell you, of all the Beatitudes, this is my favorite um, because I want to see God. I don't know about you. I feel like I'm kind of like Moses, show me your face. You know, I want to see you. But God says, if you have a pure heart, you will see me. David said it this way, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So to ascend the hill of the Lord, we have to have a pure heart. The heart includes everything that, that is our makeup. Whenever they talk about the heart in Hebrew culture, they're talking about the person. They're not talking about the organ that beats. They're talking what we would probably call our soul. So blessed are those whose real person, who you really are, not what you look like, but who you really are inside is pure. Because that pureness allows us to see God. That means we have single-minded obedience to Jesus. I'm, I'm going to talk about this later because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about us being perfect. And, I mean, the Bible says none is perfect except God. But there is, there is a means of perfection that works in our life when we're pure in heart. When we're pure in heart and we're able to ascend the hill of the Lord, we're able to stand before the Lord in purity with holy, with clean hands and a pure heart. Purity of heart, you know, includes our morals, our motives, our methods. Morals resist um, fleshly desires. Um, the, the, the things that the lust of our heart. Peter says this, I beg you, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Jesus said this, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. All these evil things 
come from within and defile man. So a pure heart comes from within. That pure heart comes when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, these beatitudes are not separate. It's not like, I'm just going to do number four. They all, it's like a chain. They're all connected to each other. You know, when, when, it's, when, when it's pure in heart, whether it's merciful, whether it's meek, you know, what it, when it's righteousness, they're all connected. You can't pull them apart and say, I'm, I'm, I'm a merciful person. Well, you're not a merciful person if you're not a righteous person. You're not a merciful person if you're not walking in meekness. You're not a merciful person if you are not pure in heart. They're all, they're all tied together. And so our motives is to seek to give more to people than we seek to receive from them. Our methods to do what we do without manipulation or expectation. See, there's no substitute for purity for those who want to see and experience God. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Pursue holiness or purity, without which no one will see the Lord. See, when we, hung, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, because we're hungry, we pursue it. We pursue holiness. We pursue righteousness. Why do we pursue it? Because we want the reward of seeing God. The promise, we shall see God. The pure heart have an increased capacity to see and experience God. This is, to me, one of the greatest promises of God's word. It's, it's partially fulfilled in this life. We see God when he answers our prayers. We see God in our relationships. We see God in this community. We see God in the things that he does. You know, there's all kinds of ways God answers prayers. Um, my wife and I had a, a marital discussion the other night. So you can just define that however you want. And, and it really was um, some things were coming up unexpectedly that were going to cost money that we didn't have. And I said, we don't have that money right now. I don't know we're going to do it. Then the conversation, you know, why isn't God providing for us or is God providing for us back and forth? And, you know, it, it didn't end up in a fight. It ended up in a prayer. But there was uncertainty. The next morning, um, we get a message where somebody just sent us a check in the mail that more than covered what we needed for that expense that came up. See, that's, that's how God works you know, when, when you are at that moment, what we thought we needed, were, were we wrestling with God and the fact that we didn't have what we needed at that moment, what we thought we needed at that moment, which, by the way, it wasn't due at that moment. We still have a week or two or whatever before we would have to write the check. But, but when we come before him in a pure heart, which was this, um, God, we're struggling right now. You know, there's a need. We kind of feel like, where, where is it? But we trust you. And we're going to pray, and we're going to believe you to answer. And he answered the next morning. That's, that's pure in heart. It's okay to tell God what you're struggling with. He wants you to come before him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because our, our cry before God was not the complaint of, what are you doing? The cry before God was, what are you going to do? We trust you to do what you're going to do. And so we're just going to hold on to that. That's how, that's how we walk pure in heart. You know, um, 
This this is eternal life that you may know that that they may know you the only true God which is Jesus Christ. You know when when we see God which is this promise the picture I get and 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 I don't know what this looks like and I'll find out someday but but there's these four creatures around the throne. <clears throat> I mean they're they're weird looking dudes, you know, but it says they have eyes all around and eyes within. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. But it does tell me this. They see God. No matter what position they're in, because they have eyes all around and they have eyes within, no matter what, they see God. That, that's how I see the fullness of the promise. I see God right now. I see God through Christ in my life. I see God as I look at you. I see God, I, I see God when we're in the midst of worship. Because there's a purity of heart there. There's a moment where we, in a time where we have pushed everything aside and our focus is on him and we see him and he talks to us and he moves and, and we see that. And that's, that's the pursuit of him. You know, the compelling power to, to live before man's eyes needs to be put aside and we need to be compelled to live before his eyes and his eyes only. To not be concerned about what people think, but to be concerned, am I walking in righteousness? Am I showing mercy? Is my heart pure? Because every one of these has a promise. You know, if I, if I, <clears throat> excuse me, if I walk in righteousness, you know, if I hunger for it, I'm going to be filled. If I extend, if I'm merciful, I'm going to receive mercy. If I'm pure in heart, I'm going to see God. You know, if I'm meek, I inherit. All of these promises, there are promises. There we walk a certain way and God responds. And, you know, Jesus says, if your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. So we're created to see God. We're created to be near him. We are created to be able. And this is what we have to understand. I'll close with this thought. Jesus is not saying these are impossible for us to do. Jesus wouldn't say, if you're righteous, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'm going to satisfy you. He didn't say that because he knew that we would never hunger enough. He didn't say, you know, if you're merciful, I'll show mercy because he knew we could never be merciful enough to receive mercy. He didn't say, <clears throat> you know, you'll never be pure and hard enough to really see all of God. Jesus knew every one of these were attainable by us now. It's, it's not a distant promise. It's not someday. Yes, we're not going to see God fully until we stand before him for all eternity. But I see him now. I see him looking at me through you. I see him in my prayers. I see him in my worship. I see him in the word. <clears throat> and the, the purer I am in my motives and heart, the more I see God work in people's lives. So these things are attainable now. But they require us to do our part. You're going to be satisfied but you're going to have what? You'll get to see me. You know, or you're going to be satisfied, but you're going to have to hunger and thirst for righteousness first. No, he just says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then I'm going to satisfy you. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you mercy, and, and now you go be merciful. He says, no, you be merciful, and you'll receive mercy. See, he wants us, you know, that's why he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they go to church. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they watch Fox News. 
you know, or they voted for Donald Trump, although I believe that was an act of righteousness. But blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So this is the Constitution we're called to live by, the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. That's why Jesus said when you pray, pray this way. Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. God's will is being done in our life when we live out these beatitudes, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we show mercy, when we're pure in heart. God's kingdom has come in us and is demonstrated through us, and those around us benefit from us, and we benefit from it as well. So, Father, I ask, <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I ask that we'd simply every day remind ourselves who we are and how we're to walk. God, every day as we look in your word, that we would walk in meekness to behold you and to become like you. To have the fragrance of Christ upon us. God, to have wisdom and revelation, to walk in mercy to be humble, to extend grace, to forgive. <clears throat> God, to, to give to those who are looking for mercy, to care for those, God, who are in need. So, Father, we ask that our hearts would be open to walk in the fullness of this, of this teaching that Jesus made his priority in the first thing he did. Let's put aside all the self-righteousness. Let's put aside the religious spirit. And let's see what it looks like to really have a relationship with God. So, Father, we ask that our reputation will be there's a community of people who are meek. There's a community of people who pursue righteousness, who are pure in heart. There's a community of people who are merciful. They care for the widow, the orphan, the poor, the oppressed, the, the ones who continue to fall in sin, they're the merciful ones. And so, God, may it be so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In caring for the mercy, been showing mercy, um, one of the things been requested to help minister to the people who are living on the river. And I say living on the river, it's a dry riverbed. It's flowing right now. Um, <clears throat> they need bigger tents. So if you see a tent somewhere, you know, Amazon, you know, Goodwill or something, um, two-man tents really don't help them in the rain. In fact, they get pretty wet pretty quick. So they're asking for bigger tents to stay dry. And so we'll just put that out there, pray about it. If you can get a four-man tent or have access to a tent and want to bring it, we'll, bigger than four, um, Whatever God puts on your heart to get, they, they need tents. My, my wife, I, I want to say my wife and I were both, you know, overwhelmed last night with thinking of the homeless people on the river as, you know, we could hear the rain just pouring on our roof. She was more merciful than I was last night. I was more sleepy than merciful. Um, but she carries it a lot, so we pray for it all. All right, ask God, how can I be merciful to a homeless person on the river? Let's see what he says. All right? Oh, and they are looking for cane, just to cook. <clears throat>